will please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're two sermons away from finishing up Romans chapter 8. And then we'll be moving into a Advent sermon series in Isaiah. Our passage of study is going to be verses 33 through 36, but I'm going to read the whole context here in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. It's on page 945, I believe, in the Bibles and the chairs, if you don't have one. This is God's holy, inerrant, authoritative, life-giving word to us this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't even feel the need to preach after reading that. This is good words to us this morning. Let's Pray and ask God to add his blessings to us. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for these mountainous promises that are found here in Romans chapter 8. Lord, as we study them, help us to believe, Lord, help us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are many famous stories that we have heard over the years about the famous and celebrated reformer Martin Luther. He's certainly famous for the dealings and the episodes that he would recount as he wrestled with his sin, and also he would say even with the devil himself. As you may know, he lived a monastic life. He was a monk, and on many occasions in his monastic life, it was said that Luther would spend up to six hours a day privately confessing his sins and wrestling over them. He wrestled immensely with this sin, and he was in constant fear if he did not confess his sin and bring it to the God, that the immediate judgment with God would come down upon him and judge him. The torment that Luther experienced over his condemnation that he thought that he would experience led to Many health issues and and great anxiety in his life because he was so guilt-ridden by his sin. On other occasions, Luther recounts the attacks of, of Satan on him. Very famously said that you can go and view some of his studies and see 
ink splots on the wall where he hurled an inkwell at the devil who was tempting him. I think that was probably a little embellished. But he said that Satan would come and visit him during the night to plague him. And he would give the devil this answer, devil, I must sleep now, for this is God's command to work during the day, sleep at night. If he does not stop to vex me, but faces me with my sins, I reply, dear devil, I have heard the record. I have committed far more sins, which do not even stand in your record. And you can put those down, too. These stories, these experiences that we read about Martin Luther, one of the giants of the Christian faith, the father of the Reformation, his experiences can be similar to ours as well as we wrestle with our sin and with the temptations of Satan, as we, as we struggle with our sin in real life. And when we hear and when we learn about the experiences of a great man like Martin Luther and how he struggled with his sins and how he struggled with the accusations of Satan and when he no doubt struggled with worldliness that led him to be a monk, we can say that we too struggle. These experiences can beset us at any time. And so how do we remain strong in the Lord? How do we remain a faithful Christian when Satan comes and attacks us without mercy? Saying, you're not good enough. God doesn't love you. You're not going to survive this. What do we do when, when the world allures us, when the world entices us with pleasure that we cannot resist? And what do we do when our own conscience reminds us over and over of what miserable sinners we are? And even worse, we can even believe that great lie that life is so hard, God must not care. Where can we go for help? What can we do when we find ourselves locked in our sin and misery? Where can we find strength? Where do we go for assurance and comfort? Well, let's turn once again to the fountain of hope, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we read about here in Romans chapter 8. And we learn about this great foundation of hope through these rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul is asking here at the end of Romans chapter 8. And he's making an argument here. The Apostle Paul is trying to demonstrate the absolute hope, the, the rock-solid assurance that we now have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, there are five rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul asked to demonstrate the rock-solid assurance that we have in the gospel. They're unanswerable questions. Last week, we dealt with the first two. This week, we'll deal in more detail with the next three. But let me just remind you there in verse 31, if you'll look, the first question he asked, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if you're in Christ, the Father is for you. He loves you for all eternity and into all eternity. This fact is worthy of our praise. It is worthy to be thought about, written about, and sung about 
forever. God is for you. The second question he asked is that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we not also along with him graciously give us all things? Our God and our Father, who did not spare his most valuable possession, his only son, but willingly gave him over to death to demonstrate his wondrous love for us. How will he not, how can he possibly not graciously give us all things, which includes hope, hope in our suffering, our our daily bread, our sustenance that we need, the assurance of salvation. God gave us our greatest need, salvation through Christ. How will he not also give us everything that we need? And so now we turn to the next three rhetorical questions that he asks, and I want you to notice that these questions are kind of judicial in nature. We, we are to imagine, if you will, that we are in a law court. We're in a, a courtroom, and there is a great judge, and there are prosecutors coming against us. And here we are in the highest court that there could possibly ever be, the very throne room of heaven, the supreme of all supreme court. And then he asked that question in verse 33. Who? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And what the apostle is teaching us here is that because Jesus Christ is our advocate, our great Savior who God did not spare, he is in the courtroom of heaven, and there's no prosecution or accusation that can succeed. How could that be? Because I've got a lot of stuff. And you got a lot of stuff to declare you and me guilty. How could it possibly be that we could not be charged or prosecuted? The Apostle Paul says in his question, because we are God's elect. Who are the elect? Who are God's elect? Once again, we're faced with that great and wonderful doctrine of election that we don't run from, but we run to. The doctrine of predestination or election is the truth that God's sovereign grace reigns over everything in our lives, most certainly our salvation. And so our Lord Jesus makes this claim, and no one can refute him, he says in John chapter 6, for this is the will of my Father, That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. The doctrine of election teaches us that God did not leave mankind to perish in our estate of sin and misery, but out of His good pleasure from all eternity, He elected some to everlasting life, and He entered into a covenant of grace with them in order to deliver them out of their state of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So who could possibly bring a charge or an accusation against one of God's chosen ones? Who could possibly come forward with some bit of evidence to thwart God's sovereign eternal plan? Think about this. The world comes forward 
Look at what I've got him to do. Satan comes forward. Look at what they did to your holy name. Our own guilty conscience comes forward with mountains of evidence to prosecute us, to throw us into the pit of hell for all eternity. But they all fail. None of them succeed. Why? Paul says, because it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Why do we talk about the doctrine of justification all the time? Why are we always preaching about it and talking about it? And it's because it's our only hope. It's our only hope, justification, that wonderful act of God's free grace whereby he forgives us of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And so if you are in Christ, God, the judge of the cosmos, looks at you and says, not guilty because of our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This is the, this is the case that the Apostle Paul has been building all alone. Imagine him here as Matlock. That's who I think of. Anybody remember Matlock? So Paul dressed like Matlock, good southern lawyer here. Look at what he says in Romans 8. Because we know that those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Therefore, there is now no possible accusation or charge that can stand against God's elect because it is God who justifies. He is the one who gets to decide. O oh, Christian, O oh, Christian, take great comfort in this truth. The one who can condemn us for our sins. The one who can bring a charge against us for high treason against him. The one who does have the right to declare us guilty is the one who justifies us. Is the one who declares us not guilty. God is the greatest and highest ruler of all the cosmos. He's the supreme judge. And so no one can get around his judgment. No one can come in with some kind of trick, you know, or some kind of obscure case ruling and say, ah, I got him. No one can appeal to another court. And so we must praise God that he is the great judge who is merciful. He is merciful. This is the truth of all the tr truths. This is rock-solid assurance that we have in Christ. This is where we go for comfort. This is our shield and our hiding place. This is why John Newton once penned in a hymn, Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, Thou hast died. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It is God who justifies. The fourth question. 
found in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Many scholars are apt to point out that this is actually not a new question. It follows the logic of verse 33, that it's connected there, that who is to condemn or who can bring a charge. These are basically the same thing. But let's espouse this as a new question so that we can see the further assurance that we have in Christ. This this verse is the same truth that is found at the very beginning of this wondrous chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation. Who is to condemn? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. More specifically, there's no condemnation because Christ has rescued us from condemnation by, look how Paul answers his own question in verse 34, by the death, the resurrection, the exaltation, and the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can charge us as guilty. No one can condemn us because of Christ's fourfold redemptive work. Look there in verse 34. Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so we have Jesus' death, his death on the cross. God's wrath had to be satisfied, and it was accomplished on the cross. Every sin we have ever committed, every sin we will ever commit was laid on Jesus. And because of this, not one sin Not one sin can be brought against us as a charge to condemn us because Jesus died. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. As he was raised from the dead, so we were raised to newness of life. And it is a promise guaranteeing our inheritance that we will be raised with him at the last day. There's Jesus' exaltation. Jesus is highly exalted, is at the right hand of God the Father, sovereignly ruling and reigning over the universe and over his church. And here we seated, seated royally in the throne room of heaven. And his position shows him as the great king, the great conqueror, that it is finished and he sat down. To show it. And then there's this intercession. We read earlier from Hebrews 7, 25. That he always lives at the right hand of God the Father. Interceding for us. We don't have a dead Jesus. We have a living Savior. One who is always at the right hand of God the Father. Interceding for us. Do you realize what that means? Have you thought about the implications of that? That Jesus is always there to hear us. That he is always interceding for us to deal with our problems. To sympathize with our pain. To know our suffering. And to see our sin. And there are no sins. There are no sins that we have that are too messy for him to deal with. Do you believe that? Derek Thomas says this kind of imagining Jesus' intercession. What does Jesus say to the Father? 
perhaps something like this. This one whom Satan is accusing is mine. You have given him to me before the foundation of the world. He, he's mine. I died for him. I shed my blood for this one. I, I bore the wrath for him. I, I did everything, all of it. Now, Father, help him in his struggles. Send the Holy Spirit to encourage him of what I have done and give him peace. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a wonderful picture of what Jesus does? does? Too often we just believe, yes, I accepted him as my Lord and Savior and that he died, but we fail to forget that he lives. He lives for us. He is always interceding for us. He not only died, but he always lives to intercede for us. He has an ongoing ministry with us because he loved us and he promised never to forsake us. And so who can condemn? No one. Nothing. Because Jesus was condemned so that we would not have to be. He was condemned for us. He condemned our sin on the cross. And so in Jesus Christ, God the Father gives us what we do not deserve, pardon, absolute pardon. Do you believe all this? Can you believe all this? The ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is it not worthy of our praise every day at all times? The last question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The late Martin Lloyd-Jones said this as we progress through Romans 8. We are climbing a grand staircase. And here is the last question, the top step of this grand staircase. Who? Who? Anybody or anything you can think of, nothing, no one can stand up to Jesus. No one can separate us from the love of Christ. When I was a child, I believed something very, very false. I believed that there was this fight against Jesus and Satan. It's like they're arm wrestling to see who's going to win. That's not true. Jesus has already won. Satan has no chance. The devil is a weakling compared to Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus said again in John chapter 6, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up at the last day. And so to be clear, the apostle Paul kind of anticipates are, but what about, but what, what if this happens? Paul gives us a list here in verse 35. And I've gotten to know many of you pretty well, and I understand this town. We all like lists, don't we? We have a list. He anticipates the naysayers, the ones who would say, yeah, Paul, I hear you, but what about this thing? And look at this list in verse 35, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Tribulation. Distress, persecution, can these things separate us from the love of Christ? 
no way. No way, not even harassment, not, not, even, not even torment, not even persecution. And it's amazing to study persecution in the church. Whenever there was the greatest persecution of the church, it was the greatest growth of the church. Think about that for a moment. What about famine? What about when our stomachs are empty? We should all identify that. We've been talking about this big feast we're about to have. Everybody's stomach's kind of... <laughs> Not even starvation can separate us from the love of Christ. What about nakedness? What about when there are no clothes on our backs? When even that is gone, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What about danger or sword? What about real physical threats to our lives? Not even the threat of death can separate us from the love of Christ. This is all real life stuff that we deal with, right? This is all things that we experience. We don't minimize or deny that sufferings are hard because this is, this is real. And this is why this kind of strange verse is included in verse 36. Did you notice that? Why did Paul throw that in there? Well, he put that in there. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 44 verse 22 to show that this is what the Christian life can be like. It's like sheep lined up to go into the slaughterhouse to be killed. That's what the, the danger, the suffering can feel like. And the Roman Christians were dealing with this. Maybe one day we will too, but we certainly have brothers and sisters around the world who are dealing with this, and he is saying that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of Christ. So brothers and sisters, we can't be fair-weather Christians because there is nothing that can separate us from God's love, especially difficulty, especially suffering. Because this is when it really matters. This is when these promises make sense. This is often how God works and grows us. is through this suffering. So we must love Christ. And be assured of his love in all situations. God will bring us through trouble. Through danger. Through suffering. Of all forms. Because what is he trying to do in this? He's trying to make us like Christ. If you want to be like Christ, he suffered. He went through hell because of the love of the Father. And the Father is trying to make us more like his son. Today we celebrate Thanksgiving as a church family. All the blessings that we have to be thankful for. But... Rather than just focusing on maybe material blessings today, let's, let's think a little bit about spiritual blessings. Let's think about these spiritual gifts that we have here in Romans chapter 8. Think about these. God is for us. He gave his own son for us. He promises to graciously give us all things. No one can charge or accuse us or snatch us out of his hands. No one can condemn us 
because of the work and the ongoing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not a thing. Zilch. Zero. Nada. Nothing. Oh, love that will not let me go. And in a moment we will sing, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. May we praise him forever for it. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe these truths, these promises, this assurance that quite frankly can be hard for us to comprehend and believe. Lord, I pray this morning if there is someone or others in here who are struggling with assurance, who are struggling with how can I know, how can I know Jesus loves me, how can I know that I'm safe in his hands, Lord, I pray that these promises would ring true in their hearts, in all of our hearts. And Lord, show us that your love is greater, your love is higher, your faithfulness is the greatest that there ever was because of Jesus, because of his work. Help us to give thanks and praise to him for what he has done. Great is your faithfulness. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.